Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today we are concluding our series on Killing Kryptonite. Uh, it's been an eye-opening and um, type of series, challenging series. Um, week one, we talked about the body of Christ, how that God sees us as a local church, as one body, um, so that what I do affects you and what you do affects me. We are one body. And then last week, we looked at um, the sin of idolatry, which is really what kryptonite is, because idolatry is adultery. Uh, the same as a marriage relationship, it's um, idolatry is when you put something before God. You're basically cheating on God and cheating on your covenant with God. And I want to say this publicly, um, that Pastor Everett Fraley and Pastor Charles Kennison and Amy Swoop were our Secret Sunday uh, speakers last week, and they all three knocked it out of the park. Can we give it up for them? They did an amazing job carrying the second week of this series. Uh, we are closing it out today. I want to talk to you about eliminating kryptonite. And this is going to be a heavy, messy, I'll be honest, 8.30, I struggled to get finished at 10. I didn't even stay on my notes. Like, I'm all over the place because um, God has some things to say as it relates to getting rid of kryptonite in our lives. And I think in order to eliminate kryptonite, we have to start with the, the long-range um, consequences if we don't. Like what happens long term if we don't deal with the kryptonite in our lives? Um, and it comes from Matthew chapter 7, starting verse number 21. Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not Prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now this is a strong couple of statements from Jesus, and it's one of those texts that we, you know, we typically want to avoid, you know, preaching this on a Sunday. I mean, this is not going to make anybody jump up and say, praise the Lord for this, Right. Uh, it's not going to do that. Uh, we, we don't like looking at texts like these, but one of the things that this text does is that it raises questions. Uh, one of the questions that it raises is, who's Jesus talking to? Like, who's he talking about? Surely he's talking about people who don't love God, don't profess, profess Jesus, don't go to church. But actually, on the contrary, the truth is, is that that is who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are in our midst, attend our church services, attend small groups, maybe even serve on the dream team, that they will stand before God, all right? And I'm saying as a whole, as a body of Christ, not just Bethesda, they will stand before God thinking they're getting in only to be told, I don't know you, depart from me. He is talking about people who are not on the sidelines He's talking to people who profess they love Jesus. They profess they preach Jesus and live for Jesus. That's who he's talking about. And he identifies them. If you look closely at verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. 
So they're, they're professing that Jesus is the Lord of their lives. And, and so what's the deal, Pastor? Well, here's the deal. Out of their mouth, they're professing Jesus, but their lifestyle does not back it up. That's what he's saying. They're professing Jesus, but they are living however they want to live. They're doing whatever they want to do. He's talking about people who are denied entrance yet profess Jesus. Now, I found it interesting when I looked at this in the message translation. Look at this. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. You have to remember, this is Jesus talking. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message, we bashed the demons, our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking, and do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit, you're out of here. Now, how many know that's some strong language from Jesus? That's some strong, strong language. And again, these people are not on the sidelines. These are people who supported the work of God, supported their local church, who said, I love Jesus, who told everybody they ran into about Jesus, but something about their life did not match their words, that they were living one thing, and professing something else. Most translations use the word many when talking about this group. Like, it's not a small group. This is not a small number. This is a large number of people are going to be told, depart from me, I don't know you. And these people think they're okay, everything's going to be fine. We preached, we, we cast devils out, we prophesied, we, we were a part of your work. And, and Jesus said, depart from me, I don't know you. Now, the question we have to ask is how do these people differ from those who are going to make it, those who are not denied entrance into the kingdom? Matthew seven twenty three says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's the key phrase. You practice lawlessness. Now, the word lawlessness here is defined as the condition of being without law, whether by ignorance or you're just in direct violation to it, okay? So what God is saying here is that the lawless person does not adhere to his word. They, they profess Jesus, they just don't obey what he says. All right, does that make sense? They, they profess him, they just, they're not into the obedience thing. They're not going to do what he said do. Um, and I'm going to make it practical. What this looks like is, it's a person who commits sin on a regular basis, and they refuse to repent. It's not a person who periodically stumbles, right? How many of we all mess up? All right, it's not talking about you mess up, and you repent, and you move on. It's talking about a person who has a known, practiced sin in their life that they refuse to address. I think Pastor Charles said it last week. There's a difference in falling into the pool and jumping into the pool. There's a difference. Some people have jumped into the pool of sin, and instead of saying it's wrong, my life's not in line with the Word, they just go ahead and settle in their sin. 
and profess Jesus at the same time. I'm going to say I love him, but I'm not going to address this part of my life. Part of the issue is not only those who stumble and, and, and get sin in their life and have idolatry and known sin, practice sin in their life. Part of the problem is also leadership, which we're going to get to. Because God puts a big responsibility on leaders to correct what's wrong. We don't like this kind of preaching either. Uh, but, but there's a responsibility on leadership to correct people when their lives are not right. Um, repentance was the message of John the Baptist. Repentance was also the message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. What I want to say about repentance is repentance is not a prayer. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is a shift in purpose. It's a change of direction. I know a lot of people that pray prayers but don't change. Like I got saved 1,000 times growing up. And you know why I got saved 1,000 times? Because I, I wasn't into repentance. I wanted to get guilt off. I wanted to come and pray a prayer, get the guilt off, but you know what I wanted to do? Go back out and keep living the way I was living before I prayed. The sad truth is a lot of church people that are not like 13 like I was are, are adults and they've been in church a long time and they pray and ask God to forgive them because they want their guilt gone, but they have no intentions of changing. And God says, that's kryptonite. God says, that's idolatry. God says, that's the ones that will stand before me at the end and think they're getting in and they're going to be told, get out of here. Because their lifestyle did not match their confession. And this is tough. Like I said, I didn't wake up this morning. A couple of, I didn't wake up saying, praise God, I get to preach this. But repentance is not a prayer. It's a shift in purpose that we are, we're making a 180. We're making a turn, a change. And at 10 o'clock, I just had to, had to do this. I'm going to do it again. little, uh, I guess, soul therapy for me. I am concerned that we have a lot of people in the modern church who are praying prayers but not changing. We're saying, God, forgive me with no intention of changing our life. And the church, the modern church, has to adopt 37 ways to follow up with the new Christian. And I'm not saying we're going to stop that. We're going to do everything we can to get the new Christian plugged in and to get them back to church. And we're going to call and we're going to email and we're going to use social media and we're going to text. We're going to, if we have to visit, we're going to do all that stuff but when I think about my conversion, listen, there was no follow-up team at that church. Nobody called me. I didn't receive a text. I didn't get a t-shirt, didn't get a coffee mug, didn't get a book. But you know what I did get? I got a changed heart and nobody had to look for me the following Sunday because I had a fire on the inside of me because my life had been changed and nobody had to tell me where to go next? 
Because I had a fire on the inside of me saying, I want to know this Jesus that has changed me. And so I have to ask with some people who pray a prayer and then we don't see them for two months, did you get what I got? That's not a judgment. It's not. But I, I do have to ask, did you get what I got? Because without any prompting, without any calls, without any letters coming to my house, I wanted to be in God's house. I wanted to pray. I wanted to sing songs to God. I wanted to go revive. What My life had been changed. It was moving in a different direction. And, 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 and the current of the world is going, how many, there's a flow to the world. And in order to live for God, we have to go against the current. But a lot of us, we're in church, but we're still flowing in the current of the world. Is this all right? This is, this is the Bible. But we, we need this because idolatry is the refusal to turn from known sin. That's what idolatry is. The moment we give our lives to Jesus, we need to know at that moment, we're not the same person. The seed of God has been planted on the inside of us. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. And at that point, the rest of our lives is a journey of getting to know God better and learning what pleases Him and what doesn't please Him. All right, it's no different in your relationship. If you're married or about to get married, how many know that part of that relationship is learning what pleases them and, and what needs that you need to meet for them, and, and also you need to find out what they don't like, right? And, and it's not that we do that because we, we're going to have a contract at the courthouse. We do that because we love that person. It's out of relationship. And so... The mark, watch this, the mark of a true believer is that they are fighting against their flesh. Somebody who has settled in their sin and says, I'm not changing, listen, I, I have to question, are you a real believer? A real believer is fighting against their flesh. The Apostle Paul said, I have to die every day. Chad Dingus has to die every day because if I don't, I'll do something stupid. Y'all can smile, it's all right. I will do something stupid if I don't choose to die every day. Why? Your flesh does not want to obey God. I had somebody ask after the, after the second service, like, how do I obey God? How do I do that? I want to do A, B, and C. My flesh wants to do A, B, and C. And I'm like, welcome to the club. Your flesh does not always want to do the will of God. Jesus died on a cross for you, but he also said that I want you to take up your cross for me. Which means there's weight to this. That means you're going to feel this. That, that it's not just a walk through the park. There's a crucifying of the flesh that has to take place. But that is the mark of a true believer. In John 6, not in my notes, and I'm going off script again, but I have to do this. Jesus got to a place where thousands of people were following him. But watch this. They were following him because of the healings, the miracles, the multiplying of the fish and loaves, the raising the dead, all the people were there following him for what he could do for them. 
And it's almost like Jesus got tired of doing the miracles and the healings and the blessing everybody. And he turned to the crowd and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. And the Bible says the thousands walked out. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, you want what I can give you, but you don't want me. Idolatry comes into our life when we want eternity in heaven. We just don't want relationship with Jesus. We, we want our get out of hell card, but we don't want to know Jesus. How I many of that's a dangerous place? See, God can work with a person who knows they have issues and they're actively fighting against those issues and fighting against their flesh. God can work with that. But God cannot work with people who settle in their sin and say, I'm not changing. So Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. The word knew means to intimately know. In other words, you prayed a prayer, but you never knew me. You, we didn't have a relationship. It never got any further than you praying a prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and John comes behind Jesus and says this, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but, uh, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So Jesus said, I'm going to tell some people, get out of here, I don't know you. And then John says, there's some people that need to know that if you really love God, you obey God. Like, if, if there's a real love there, you're going to obey what God says to do. And if, if you don't do that, you're a liar. And so the problem with deception is that you're deceived. How I many of you don't know it? Like, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of people are deceived. And John affirms here what Jesus taught, that you can identify people by their actions. Jesus told us that you would know a tree by its fruit, right? That, that you could look at what it produced and you could know that tree. So the question we have to ask is, have I repented of the known and practiced sin in my life? Because if I have not repented from it, I'm in a dangerous spot. Now, that's for people who are in it, but let's go, let's move, let's kind of change directions to those who are in positions of leadership and even preachers of God's word. In Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 18, it says, When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. It says, but if you warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin. Check this out. But you will have saved your life. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that a person did will not be remembered and I will hold you accountable for their blood but if you do warn the righteous person not to sin and they do not sin they will surely live because they took warning and you have saved yourselves so God says it's one thing for a person to be in sin and for them 
to have idolatry or what we would call kryptonite in their lives, but he said it's another thing when you're a leader and you don't tell them. He says not only will they die in their sin, but their blood will be on your hands. So one of the things that, that keep me alarmed or concerned every time I stand up to speak is that I understand if I don't tell people the truth, I will be, I will be judged for that. That if, that if we don't speak the whole truth, the whole counsel of God, that's a big deal to God. It's, it's like a person who's headed towards a cliff, and we can see them getting ready to walk off the cliff, and we don't say, hey, you need to stop. Now, some of you are like, I, I'll do that, Pastor, depending on who it is, right? Certain people, I'll just say, enjoy the journey, right? I'm just kidding. Come on. You got to stop them. And, and that's what we're doing in the church. We're warning. Colossians 1.28 says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is our grown-up year. We're trying to, we're, we are maturing this year because we want to become all that God says that we are. And we also want to arrive at a place that God can entrust to us more of the harvest. How many know God's not going to send the harvest to a bunch of babes in Christ? People who profess Jesus but live a different way. So we got to grow. Hit your neighbor and say, it's my grown-up year. So God tells those who preach and teach the word that he will hold them responsible. Acts 20, verses 26 and 27 says, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So all of you that think that this preaching and teaching gig is an easy gig, I got a word for you. It comes from James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Who wants the mic? This is what keeps me every week getting up and begging God to touch my life again. Because I will be judged more strictly. And so this kind of, pre what you're getting the last three weeks, you won't hear this a lot on Christian television. Not going to happen. You, you don't hear a lot of this. And, and a lot of it is we're in a culture where the Bible talks about the culture we live in, that people would have itching ears and they would go to and fro trying to find somebody who would preach what they want to hear. It's a dangerous spot. Every now and then we need to be told, hey, you're heading in the wrong direction. If you don't repent, you, you're not going to make it. How many know it's okay to tell somebody that? If we're doing it in love, not doing you can't be like I was when I first started preaching. When I first started preaching, nobody had ever taught me about righteousness. Nobody had taught me about grace and love. I didn't hear any of that. And so when I, I got saved and then later got called to preach, I thought it was my job to beat the sheep up. So I took pleasure in coming and beating people with the word. Like I preached a message one time. Y'all not going to believe this. I called the message holiness or hell. That was the title. My brother still... Um, kids me about it. He said, remember that time we went to that youth event and you preached holiness or hell? Because I, I was doing my best to preach people into hell. How many know that's not what my job is? My job is to preach people into heaven. 
And so if, if we're going to preach on the hard subject, we have to do the hard subject with love. We speak the truth in love, not because we're mad at people or want them to miss out on it, but we love them enough to say, here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want anybody to stand before God and, and at the end and say, well, Pastor Chad made me feel like I was okay, and him say, depart from me. Like that, that is something, I mean, that'll keep you up at night. Nobody wants, wants that. And so there's a responsibility for us to preach the entire will of God, and God doesn't need me to dumb down his word at all. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. There's just some homework. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God w shall, take away, um, shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I just want to stop and say, how can we ignore these kind of warnings? How can we ignore them? Salvation, the first step to salvation is repentance. So we're not just asking God to forgive us. We are moving in a new direction. We cannot preach salvation without telling people their life has to change. If our life looks completely the same after salvation as it did pre-salvation, we've missed something. Our lives should look different. They should be moving in a different direction. And I, I want to ask this question. Could it be that we're not seeing the fullness of everything God has because we have weakened our churches with a lack of genuine repentance? Like a genuine turning. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a church where we just come and pray a prayer and then we go live our own lives. This is going over well. John said in his book, we, he said, why, why do we have abortion, adultery, sexual immorality, gender confusion? Why is all that flourishing in America? And he says, it's not because our societies are getting more progressive. This same trend of lawlessness was seen when the church grew cold in the fourth and fifth centuries. Long time ago, the same stuff we're dealing with was happening. And you know, the biggest issue was the church had become lukewarm. In other words, we're going to profess Jesus but do our own thing. Jesus has something to say about the lukewarm, doesn't he? I will spew you out of my mouth. And I want you to look at that a different way. God is saying, I will take you out of my mouth, which means God has nothing else to say over you. There's no more prophecies coming to you, no more destiny spoken over you. God literally takes you out of his mouth when we're lukewarm. He has nothing else to say. So when we're lukewarm, we can hear a great word and not receive it because we're not in a place to hear God. Idolatry will break, will, will become a wall between us uh, hearing and receiving God's word. Nothing, anything less than proclaiming the truth of God's word is refusing to love our neighbors. So if we're not telling the truth, we don't love. Now, in the final book of the Bible, Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches in Asia, all right? 
He writes to seven different churches. Uh, we know that these messages were to all seven churches, but because they're in the Bible, we also know there is a practical or prophetic application to us today, or it wouldn't be in the Scripture. Um, so let's look at Revelation chapter 2, and he's writing to the church of Thyatira. And it says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality. Watch that. I've given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, couple of things as you say, oh, wow. Couple of things. He's talking to a vibrant church. When you, when you study this out, this church is growing. This church is flourishing. They are being complimented by Jesus on their love, on the community of faith that they have. Uh, on their care for one another. This is not a church in maintenance mode. This is a church that's making a difference. And so Jesus pats them on the back, says, great job for all these things, and then he shifts directions and says to them, um, you guys are tolerating that woman, Jezebel. Now, a lot of us, when we read that, we think, was there a woman in that church named Jezebel? Most commentaries say that it's not a woman in that church named Jezebel, um, matter of fact, in, in that culture, no one named their kid Jezebel, obviously, for obvious reasons. It's kind of like a Christian naming their son Judas, like the same kind of thing. Um, and, and so it makes sense when you consider that Jesus' words are translated, he says to the church, he said, you have tolerated that Jezebel. All right, so that is an indicator that that's not a name of a woman in that New Testament church, um, but he is, he is more clearly identifying behavior in that church that parallels what Jezebel did in First and Second Kings. Like, so we're not really dealing with a person, we are dealing with a spirit. How many of there is a spirit of Jezebel, and it's not makeup and eyeshadow and earrings? It's a spirit that wants to influence leadership. It wants to bend the ear of leadership and eventually silence the voice of the leader and to make the word of God of no effect in the people. All right? That's what Jezebel does. What is Jezebel known for? Idol worship. What's this whole series about? Idolatry. Idol worship. They constructed... Um, memorials to Baal and, and Asherah and, and, the, and the prophets of God had become silent except for one prophet. There were 450 that had not bowed but only one spoke up. And his name was Elijah. And he speaks up and, and look at this verse in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm staying on notes better this time. 
It says, how long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your mind. I love Elijah because he has zero tolerance for idol worship, zero tolerance for Jezebel. And he speaks up about those who are sitting on the fence. And I want to say it like this. Some people have just enough Jesus to be miserable. How's that possible, Pastor? You got just enough Jesus and just enough world that you can't enjoy either one. You got one foot in and one foot out, and you're not having a good time at either. How many know that when you, when you love God and you're living a way that, that is contrary to his word, you have zero peace? Come on, don't act all holy. There have been seasons in my life when I had issues, and I didn't want to deal with my issues. I just want to say I love Jesus anyhow. How many know that robs you of peace? It robs you. And, and we don't like to talk about it, but God uses pain as a great motivator. And sometimes pain is in your soul. Sometimes pain is in your mind. It's, it's the guilt. It's, it's the things that you carry when you refuse to repent. And so some of us, we got just enough Jesus and just enough world that we can't enjoy either one. But if Elijah were to take this microphone, he would look at you and say, if Jesus is Lord, then be all in for Jesus. If, if you want to do the world, then just be all in for the world. But either way, get off the fence because you're in the way. Hit your neighbor and tell him, get off the fence. You can't have one, one foot in and one foot. Is this preaching all right today? I just need to know. After three times of people just staring at me, this is getting old. I'm going to start preaching a little bit and then stop and say, Amen. Sick him. 2 Timothy 4.2. Listen, before I read that, we are called to speak out. And I know we live in a world that we're all about tolerance and politically correct and got to love everybody, but we're not loving people if we refuse to tell them the truth and they die in their sin. That's not love at all. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Herald and preach the word, keep your sense of urgency, whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether it is welcome or unwelcome, you as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong. Elijah loved people enough to tell them that your lives are, are wrong. When the Jezebel spirit is tolerated in a church, the leadership becomes silent, lethargic, and intimidated. In the Old Testament, practice sin uh, had gained the upper hand. God's word had become silenced due to, to Jezebel. And in this New Testament church, we see the same thing happening. But just like Elijah, John stood up and he spoke out against it. And when you study the text of this church in Thyatira, it was that we read all that, and it can get lost, like the real meaning of what's going on in that church. But what had happened is that the people that were a part of that church had become spiritually unfaithful. They were coming to church, going through the motions, checking the boxes, but their heart was not in it. The key word here is tolerance. Jesus says to this church, he says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, 
you are, he's, he's saying this, you, you are permitting her. You're permitting. The word, it's the Greek word for tolerate here is permit, uh, which, which means positively you allow, you permit, or negatively you won't forbid it. So, so Jesus is basically saying, I wanted you to stand up and forbid this junk from going on and you wouldn't do it. I wanted you to put a stop to it. Um, and, and the interesting thing is Jesus moves past the people that are in this sin. He says, I gave them time to repent and they would not. So now I'm going to deal with those over them in the Lord because they're permitting it. I had to learn this the hard, hard way. But here's what I want you to know. Silence is consent. When we don't speak out, we are basically applauding what's going on. Silence gives consent. It's nonverbal communication that everything's okay. When we refuse to deal, and this is tough for me because I could preach to 10,000 people in a manner like this. It doesn't affect me at all. Like, I'm going to do it. But you get me in a one-on-one, I'm a nervous wreck. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's harder to call somebody out eyeball to eyeball. But how many of us, there are times that's necessary. That you, you, you got to have a talk and say, hey, you're headed for a cliff. You're, you're headed in the wrong direction. And I, I, I love you, but. This part of your life needs to change. And I'm all about uplifting messages. You guys know that. We love talking, encouragement, uplifting. We do it all the time. But we have to do the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. Um, Jude chapter, there's only one chapter, verses 3 and 4. Here's what Jude said. He said, Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. So Jude's saying, I wanted to talk to you about salvation and blessing and all the good stuff. He said, but I found out that some ungodly people worm their way in and they are making you believe that you can just say I love Jesus and live any way you want and it's cool. What, what, what they're doing is Jude is speaking against leaders and believers who preach a permissive grace rather than an authentic empowering grace. See grace is not just something that covers you, grace empowers you. This must be a good message because it is quiet. Permissive grace versus empowering grace. See, Jude is not content with tolerating the yeast that is working its way into the body. Willful known sin that is not repented of becomes a cancer. And Jude says we got to deal with it. The Apostle Paul didn't stay silent when there were divisions in the church. He didn't stay silent when there was strife and jealousy and immorality and 
people having sex with one another in the church. He, did, he wasn't silent. He spoke out on it. He, and how, how did he do it, Pastor? He just proclaimed the word. He gave them the word of God. He didn't water it down. He gave them the word of God. Now, I got to kind of wrap this series up, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come. I still have three pages of notes that I, can't, I don't have time to give you, but I have to wrap it up. And the question that I want to ask you is how do we really eliminate kryptonite from our lives? I mean, how, how do we really get, if we have known practice sin, we have kryptonite, we have idolatry in our lives, how do we move past it? All right, that's, that's real. And this is not really a five-step program. All right, that's not what this is about at all. I think it's really, really, really simple, and I want to I boil it all down to one verse. Well, actually, it's three verses, one text. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us man this is so good if you can grab this godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret that's godly sorrow but worldly sorrow brings death the reason I got saved a thousand times is because my sorrow was not godly it was worldly I wanted to pray guilt off, but I had no intention of really restoring my relationship with God. See, he identifies two different types of sorrow, worldly and godly, and we can see both manifested in the, in the first two kings of Israel. Check this out. King Saul was the first king. He did not obey everything God told him to do. He was blatant about it, did his own thing. What did God do? He sent a prophet to call him out in front of his team and all the people. And he called him out, and it took a little bit, but Saul, King Saul finally admitted that he sinned. But look at his response in 1 Samuel 15, 30. Here's what King Saul said. I have sinned, yet honor me now. Does that look like godly sorrow to you? No. It's worldly sorrow. All Saul was concerned about was what everybody thought of him. He wasn't concerned about what God thought at all. He just wanted to appear okay before the people. He wasn't concerned about his personal walk with God. David, on the other hand, committed adultery, murdered, lied about it. How many know he had some major issues? We, all, all we ever do is prop David up. He's awesome, he's awesome, he's awesome. He had major issues. But you know one thing that was separated David from everybody else? Is he truly had a deep relationship with God. Because when the prophet called David out in front of his team and in front of his people, here's what David said. I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say anything about honor me now and again in front of these people. He says, I have so Saul says, I've sinned. David said, I've sinned against the Lord. Sorrow of the world focuses on me. What will people think? How will they judge me? That's all we're concerned about. Godly sorrow, check this out, focuses on Jesus. Listen, I'm going to boil it down. Here it is. Here it is. It's not a five-step program. You say, how do I really get the kryptonite out? When we mess up, 
a lot of us, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of wearing a mask and praying, God, forgive me. And it's really about appearing okay in front of everybody, like Saul did. But when you're really growing in God, when you mess up, when you're out of order, out of line, not obeying God's word, you've got known sin that God's dealing with, what, what really tears you up is not what everybody's going to think. You're upset because you've hurt the heart of the one you love. See, that's the difference. You say, well, what, how, how do I really get this out? You know what the answer to all this is? Intimacy with Jesus will destroy the kryptonite in your life. Because you won't be getting rid of stuff just to appear okay in front of people. You'll be getting rid of stuff because you don't want anything to affect the intimacy between you and Jesus. The same way, same thing is true in your marriage. If you want an intimate relationship with your spouse, you don't do everything right because you've got a contract. You're doing the right thing because you love them so much and you, and you did make a commitment that their needs would be more important than mine. And, and it's not like just a burden to bear. It's something that I want to do for my spouse because I love them more than anything. I would lay my life down for them. And that's how your relationship with Jesus is. So repentance is not about everybody thinking I'm cool. Repentance is about I want to make sure my relationship with God is solid and that we are in love with one another. And if we are in that place, we will continue to grow and mature, and this will be our grown-up year. Amen. Can you give God a hand for that? Come on, let's stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. I, if you're new to Bethesda, please come back next week. Please give me another shot. This is a tough one. It's a tough one. But I feel like we've shared the truth. I feel good about it. I don't feel bad about it. I feel good about it. It's just a heavy, heavy message to digest. But the truth is what sets us free. Amen? As you bow your head and close your eyes, I want to speak to those that are in this place. and You need to repent of some things. Maybe you're just outside a relationship with God altogether. You need Jesus to save you. First thing I want to tell you is the first step to repentance and salvation is, or the first step to salvation is not just a prayer. You are not only asking God to forgive you, but you are deciding to move in a different direction. So if you're in this place and you're not right with God and you need to make some things right, you need to give your life to Jesus. If that's you, would you just throw your hand up right there where you are and say, that is me. Thanks for that hand back there. God bless you. Thanks for this hand in the middle. God bless you. Another one, two over here. God bless you. Thank you for your honesty. Anyone else? Anyone else? I want us to pray with all these hands that have gone up. Everybody repeat these words after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I'm asking you to forgive me for all my sins, to come into my heart, to be my Lord and my Savior. Today, I repent for all sins in my life. I'm choosing to shift my purpose and my direction. I'm renouncing the flesh and its desires, and I'm choosing to pick up my cross and follow you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Can you celebrate all those hands that have went up? Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.